0: Listening to Conversations with Scholars. This section of the podcast is dedicated to the stories of marginalized bodies in academia. This is inspired by black feminist sociologist Jacqui Alexander and political activist Angela Davis. Davis notes the importance of how histories never unfold in isolation and we cannot fully know our own histories without better knowing the stories of others. So let's learn each other's stories and follow a process of retelling, revising, reflecting, and relaunching. This discussion is with Dr. Watufani Poe, an assistant professor of language, literacy, and culture in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Leading at the University of Pittsburgh. He earned his Ph.D. in Africana Studies from Brown University in May of 2021, his Master's in History and Africana Studies in 2018 from Brown University, and his B.A. in Black Studies from Swarthmore College in 2013. Before joining the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, he served at the Center for Humanistic Inquiry Postdoctoral Fellow at Amherst College from 2021 to 2022, placed in the Department of Black Studies and the program in Latinx and Latin American Studies. His manuscript project, Resisting Fragmentation, The Embodied Politics of Black Queer World Making, is an ethno-historic analysis of Black LGBTQ social and political activism in Brazil and the United States to outline the ways Black LGBTQ people push for freedom across various social and political movement spaces. So we're here today with Dr. Watufani Poe. We had a nice conversation about the origins of his name. (laughs) Black first name and a a white last name that you put a twist to, so...
1: (laughs) Very common black story, I feel like, in the U.S. <laughs>
0: oh, I was like, huh. I looked at your abouts page for a while. I'm like,
1: interesting. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it throws people off. <laughs>
0: it's nice. You walk into your room and you're like, Dr. Poe. I, I want to see people's reactions, you know? it's. Just <laughs>
1: <laughs> now that I think about it, I should start looking for that. I should start looking yeah. for the how people react and they're looking yeah. for Dr. Poe.
0: <laughs> looking at the silences, you know, and like what's what they're trying to communicate um this
1: Absolutely.
0: Was, like, when I was in an airport once and they were like th- like, you know, paging Mr. White and then, you know, like a black man comes to the counter. I was like, huh? Like things like that like <laughs> it's so it's so tricky.
1: You know? Yep. Yep, yep.
0: <laughs> the um, things we
1: expect when we hear a name. When we
0: hear a name, right? That's that's a study. But anyways, how are you? Welcome. Thank you for making the time. We just went on a whole different spiel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no. I'm excited to to be able to talk with you this morning. I think this is such an important project. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to share a little bit more about my own journey. Mm-hmm.
0: But th- go ahead. Tell us about you, your journey. Um, you know, your journey to grad school, how you stayed, yes. finished, and you know, continued <laughs> the whole thing. And yes, um, yeah, your research.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I will say that um I don't think that graduate school was necessarily something that was unexpected. You know, all of these these um these studies are coming out now that says that the majority of folks who have a PhD have a parent um, with a graduate degree, particularly a PhD. Um, I fall into that category. So my, my dad um, is a scholar of African, Af- uh, of African and African American history. Um, my parents were pan-Afghanist um, activists who met in college doing pan Africanist organizing with Kwame Ture, some folks know him as Dobley Carmichael. Um, and so, you know, I was raised in a Pan Africanist household. I was raised really thinking about Black knowledges on an everyday uh, level. Um, that's not to say that I didn't necessarily get distanced from that once I started going into, you know, the American school system, which Really does not want you to have a kind of close relationship to these black knowledges. Um, so you know, I found distance from it for a while, but I could only find distance from it for so long. Um, so I think I came to the the questions in my research. Uh, so growing up in a Pan Africanist household. Um, There's all these expansive understandings of what it means to have solidarity between African peoples throughout the world, um, and really expansive ideas of understanding what blackness is, where where it's located, etc. But I found that, particularly when I was coming into myself as a young queer person, that there were really rigid understandings of gender and sexuality. Within these pan Africanist spaces that I was frequenting, um, I remember in my rites of pass, I went to an Afrocentric uh, elementary school that my mom taught out at. My, that my mom taught at actually, and I remember in my right of passage class, um, we were having uh, our right of passage courses were split between uh, girls and boys. And so, in our boys' rights of class at passage class, we were talking about, you know, what does it mean to construct a relationship? What does it mean to to be a responsible man, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and one of the things that the teacher said is that, you know, being gay is something that was that's white and that was imported from the transatlantic slave trade. So it was something that was forced upon African communities. Um, and, you know, I I was in middle school at the time, and I was only just thinking, uh, beginning to understand myself as different, didn't even have words to, to put to, you know, whatever was happening to my sexual awakening. Um, and, you know, but that moment, for me, it says, if I want to continue being a part of my community, that means that whatever is happening in my mind, uh, in my feelings, that that that's not um that's not compatible with my community that's not compatible with who i am um and so you know that was when this split began for me um and i was really um for a long time until I got to college, I really adhered to that split. Um, It was really only amongst white friends uh, when I went to boarding high school that I really felt comfortable talking about queerness. When I came home, um, that door was closed again. Um, And I found that I was self-imposing these things um, uh, because of these kinds of um, fundamental, um, foundational things that I learned in middle school. So that kind of, that moment, In a rites of passage class, um, in an Afrocentric elementary school, um, like was foundational for me. So nobody even had to tell me after that, that, you know, queerness isn't, isn't welcome here, um, that, that I would self-police. Um, and so for a long time, I didn't even give my, my parents the opportunity to really, um, understand who i was because i was already self-policing because Mm -hmm. i had gotten the message that this was not something that was um acceptable within our community um so it wasn't wasn't really until I got to college that I really started thinking through why is this split existing for me and finding ways to kind of piece myself back together, um, and that was because I started really opening up to other Black queer folks um, who who I was friends with in college um, who talked about similar experiences, feeling these kinds of things, um, and so I was really started investing in in helping other youth who were going through similar things that I felt who didn't have someone to talk to about them. So I started um, organizing with uh, queer youth organizations. I, In the summer of my sophomore year of college, I um, did an internship with uh, um, an LGBTQ youth nonprofit in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I actually then returned to that nonprofit to do an AmeriCorps year after I graduated from undergrad. Um, And this was an organization who I really respected the work they were doing. They were doing it on both a, a statewide level and a national level. And the kind of message that they were telling me when I came on for the AmeriCorps year is that they were really, um, committed to this um, social justice, this racial justice fight. Um, so understanding that, yes, we are a queer youth organization, and the majority of the youth that we serve are queer youth of color. So we need to um, be strong about our identity as a racial justice organization. So when I came in, um, there was a whole group of Black activists as well who were brought into the organization to work really towards this racial justice goal. And so I was very um, I was very uh, hopeful for the future of this organization coming in uh, to be a part of it at this time. What I found is that by the end of that year, um, almost all of the Black people who were brought on with me, uh, maybe one who was brought, yeah, maybe one other person who was brought on at the same time as me was still there. And a large majority of the other folks were pushed out of the organizations and really, really problematic ways specifically for holding the organization accountable to that goal of racial justice. Mm. Um, So this organization that had a white executive director um, who said that they were committed to this goal of racial justice, but when they actually bring Black folks into the room to hold the organization accountable, then those folks are pushed out. They're seen as a problem. Um, And so again, I was seeing this split. I thought that i was I was in a different place where i was I was um, seeing the possibilities of having intersectional goals um, of understanding that if we're talking about queer youth, we're also talking about black queer youth. um and And what I was seeing is that while there were ideologies around this in practice, um, black folks were seen as a problem when they were trying to actually hold folks accountable to these goals.
0: Mm. And
1: so, I was I was really really troubled with thinking about the the, the possibilities of thinking through intersectional activism. Um, yet at the same time, while I was going through this troubling experience with this organization in San Francisco, I was doing some organizing in my free time across the bay in the Oakland area um, with uh, with some some organizations that were sprouting up around the BYP one hundred, the Black Youth Project, um, and a lot of these, these budding organizations were were led by Black queer and trans folks. Um, and so the kinds of conversations that we were having about what does it mean to be fighting for racial justice, what does it mean um, to, to do that in practice, that for me, What I was hearing was always a kind of, was always um, a conversation about queer justice, about feminism, about um, thinking about ability, about thinking about socioeconomic class, is that because this Black queer and trans leadership was actually the leadership that was leading this Black movement, that there was already an intersectional kind of um lens to the movement that was happening. And that was part, and I, and my hypothesis at the time was that that was because people were drawing from their own experiences um, across all different kinds of power axes, dealing with oppression across different power axes. Um, but I was, I was fascinated with why this kind of activism felt so unique, having been through um, different kinds of active spaces where there was this split. When in talking about uh, uh, you know queer justice um, and 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 um, and integrating racial justice, that there was a really hard time that people were having in integrating those two goals. So why did this feel so different? And so that's what brought me to the kind of research questions that I that I was interested in when I came back to graduate school in 2015. Um, and so my my book project now that I have done. Um, about, so I've been doing ethnographic research since uh, the summer of 2016, up until 2022, and I'm still doing ethnographic research um, now that I'm shifting from the dissertation to the book project. Um, And um, I've done it across urban sites in the United States and in Brazil. Um, And my major argument is that Black LGBTQ activists are specifically drawing from their embodied political experiences. So their experiences being, being marked through their body um, across race, gender, sexuality, class. Um, and so, so those experiences, those embodied political experiences are structuring the kind of activism and freedom praxis that they are, that they are putting forth within um, social justice movements, whether it's in Black movements, in queer movements, or in these kinds of intersectional Black queer movements. Um, So that's my major argument within the book project. And I look at it across Brazil and the United States, specifically to kind of work against this idea. um, You know, I think that uh, certain kind of nationalistic movements within the United States have really changed the direction of a lot of Black Studies departments. So if you go back to the 60s and look at the kinds of things that Black folks were doing, is that there was a there is a huge solidarity movement um, between Black people in the United States and Black people elsewhere um, uh, across the Americas on the African continent. And so that project of Black Studies, when it begins, is a transnational project, is a pan-Africanist project. Mm. Um, But what I found is that in these years in which um, Black Studies has become institutionalized, has uh, has gotten more funding from U.S. institutions, that it has become so much more insular, that Mm. folks have been, uh, it has become so much more nationalistic. Mm -hmm. And so Black Studies becomes a U.S. nationalist project, or it can be. I don't believe that that's what all of Black Studies departments are doing. But I think my work is specifically trying to return us to that Black Studies project that is an international project, that is a, a global solidarity project. Um, and to do that, I'm looking at the context of the United States and Brazil, which so often get... get um, contrasted, so often get put into the conversation as, okay, so if race is, co- is constructed in the United States this way, and differently race is constructed in Brazil in this way. And I think that that is, is you know, a lot of times I think that's a kind of construction and knocking down of a straw man, mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't actually go to, to, to look at one, the ways in which projects of white supremacy, capitalism and heteropatriarchy are intertwined in the United States and in Brazil, that they're being co-constructed with one another. So it doesn't acknowledge that, but it also doesn't acknowledge the long tradition of solidarity between Black folks in the United States and Black folks in Brazil. Um, So I think that doing this project, looking at it um, through the lens of both the United States and Brazil, um, is specifically working to push against a nationalistic uh, a, a nationalist uh, uh lens within the context of black studies and work towards thinking about what does global solidarity mean what does it mean to connect our context what does it mean to work get work with someone whose context might be might be slightly different but is connected in a certain way um so that's that's i think what is one of the the interventions that i'm trying to to work with in my project in looking at it from the context of the united states and in brazil
0: that was fascinating. <laughs> I not know how many questions ran right through my head, but I think the most important thing was that, like, yes, you're very right. Black studies did start off as this transnational, uh, well, global, you know, and it, this made me think of when Muhammad Ali was big and how he would go to the Congo, but how there was all these other political and just terrible economic things that were happening right underneath you know, the noses of while he was in Congo. But it was like this, this Black solidarity that, like you said, it's not like it's just evaporated. (laughs) Um, But it's it's been masked a little bit. And now it's kind of like working in silos, as opposed to what would it really look like to work with one another, and exactly the difference as opposed to seeing the difference because the the difference it's just it's funny to read something and be like huh this kind of works the same way here you just you know Mm -hmm. a little different but they're still like that like these threads that are still there and existing that can what would it look like to really be together and Live in that difference, but not see that difference as negative. But see that difference as strength. Um, That's that. that, That's really what it. That's oh, and I feel like rereading something. But (laughs) yes,
1: Yes. and and you're so right because and and if we think about what people like, I talked to my parents about what it was like to do pan Africanist organizing um, in the seventies and eighties, and that. And and so it's it wasn't just a kind of conversation that folks were talking um, or or kind of speaking in solidarity with one another. Folks were also traveling, mm-hmm. being friends with one another. That, that, that like part of the context of being in solidarity with one another is meeting people from mm-hmm. other places, getting to know their stories, being friends with them, being in community with them, mm-hmm. and and so much of that when when there's not the kind of transnational exchange, a lot of that is easily lost because it's very easy to say that someone else's context isn't like mine when you don't know someone else. Mm-hmm. You've never take, gotten to, to know anybody else from that context. And so it's very easy to, 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 to ignore that context, especially when you live in a country like the United States, mm-hmm. which sees itself as the center of the world. Mm-hmm. Black people are not immune to also seeing themselves in that even though they understand that they are not granted mm-hmm. full citizenship rights within the context of this country but they're not immune to to that kind of US imperialistic mm-hmm. vision about themselves mm-hmm. um, so i think that that that's why it's even more important for folks to work against that in the context of this country
0: mm-hmm. and how did you bring how did you bring in brazil like you know it's it's yes. like how did you Put that in and and see like, okay, these two things are are being informed and being shaped by the same dominant structures of like heteropatriarchy, white supremacy. Because when you say it, or even like looking at Argentina now, or just even looking at Italy, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. think about black studies that is happening in an Italian context. And we think about the leadership of, you know, who's ruling Italy right now. It's like, yep. oh, wow, look at that. Look at what's happening in Argentina. <laughs> and, like, look at, like, the political affects the local. And the political yes. is really informed by white supremacy, which has an effect in shaping so many different things. So it's not just, like, one country and, like, just these one local people, but it's, like, it's it's
1: global. Um, exactly. But, yeah, how
0: did you bring in Brazil? Yes, that's, that's <laughs>
1: such a great question. And, like, also really great uh, insights and thinking about how our current political context Mm -hmm. across the world are showing us how how alike certain countries are. (laughs) So like, you know, Trump and Bolsonaro, Mm -hmm. like that's, it's not a coincidence that these people are possible in both of these kinds of countries. Um, But okay, so returning to kind of thinking about how I got into Brazil. So I remember, I knew that when I was studi- when I was in undergrad that I wanted to study abroad, um, and and I knew that I wanted to study abroad in a place that could help me to to kind of understand black people internationally. Um, so you know, I grew up in these house this household that had such a rich conversation about black internationalism, pan Africanism, um, but um, I guess the the only time I had been out of the country by by um, my undergrad years is when when my I went to 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 Egypt uh, for a research trip with my dad um, once, but that was the only time that I had been out of the country to kind of see global black context. So I was really interested in being able to do this. Um, and one of the things that I had realized is that while well, um, the pan spaces that I was that I was um, navigating as a young person is that there was really robust conversations about um, Black folks in english speaking context black folks in french speaking context um, and largely and largely that has to do with one um, the colonial forces um, in africa in the on the African continent, but also the the central importance of Haiti as a kind of global black project and so English and french were were in a lot of ways used as <laughs> problematically, kind of Pan African language, languages, mm-hmm. and so the 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 um, there was a lot of conversation about Black contexts in those kind of uh, uh, in the spaces that spoke those languages. Mm-hmm. What I saw is that there wasn't really a kind of strong understanding of Black people in Spanish speaking contexts mm-hmm. and in Portuguese speaking contexts, um, and you know this encompassed. Um, large parts of Latin America. Mm -hmm. And, and so at that time I was like, you know, well, this must be like a language kind of um, barrier that's happening within spaces. So I need to go learn the language so that I can understand what the context of black people are in these spaces. That was my thinking back then when I actually then um, studied abroad, I also learned that it's not just a kind of language barrier, but it's also the kind of ways in which white latin american scholars have controlled narratives around mm-hmm. black people in the country is that there's been this kind of construction of you know race mm-hmm. in the united states and south africa happens like that here in latin america it happens differently mm-hmm. and that kind of that that um that scholarship has really controlled um, the ways in which people think about Black people in Latin America. This has changed largely within the last last twenty years mm-hmm. because of the kind of circulation of Black Latin American scholars speaking against this. But what I found is that in the Pan African space that I was in, is that there there was a kind of controlling factor of the that scholarship that said that Latin America actually isn't a Black space like somewhere like Haiti, mm. somewhere like Jamaica, somewhere like uh, uh, Nigeria is. And so so there was there also a kind of controlling factor of how these white Latin American scholars had controlled the discourse. Um, and so coming back to my study abroad experience, I studied abroad in Santiago in the Dominican Republic for a semester, and then I studied abroad in Salvador da Bahia in Brazil for a semester. Um, and, and I remember both of those experiences were incredibly enlightening for me to understand what um, what Black Latin American experiences are like mm-hmm. um, in certain contexts. Specifically, this understanding of this conversation around oh, race is fluid in Latin America. Mm-hmm. That like you know uh, you know you can be one thing to one person and one thing to another, and you can choose kind of how you flow through that. Um, and what I found is that there are very rigid limits to that. <laughs> so um, you know, I remember talking to one of my um, to to one of my friends in Santiago, uh, Black Santiago, um, and she was like, you know, sure, you know, Black people in this country are understood as as indio or indio oscuro, um, which, you know, is, is, is like a in, uh, dark Indian or Indian. Um, and, but, but, you know, it's not that everybody can kind of then choose a different kind of term to be seen as, mm-hmm. um, particularly because, you know, if you show up at a, so we had a lot of instances of particularly, um, black girls in our program um who who wore their hair natural um we had a lot of experiences of going to clubs and not being let in while the white folks in our program were let in
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um and that there was actually about two months where i just stopped going out because those experiences were traumatizing to me and so that showed me is that it actually doesn't matter what term you're choosing to to identify with if there's still these kind of racial barriers. Um, And so the structures of how race functions might be different, but that doesn't mean that there's not a structure in place Mm. um, to to kind of police race happening. Um, So that was an incredibly um, kind of uh, illuminating experience for me when I was in Santiago illuminating and traumatic experience mm-hmm. like that was a traumatic semester but it was something that I needed to go through to be able to under to, to be able to navigate to know how to navigate um, black Latin America in my opinion um, but so then when I got to Salvador which is a very different context in a place like Santiago because Salvador um, because of the ways in which Black t- Blackness is central to tour- tourism in mm-hmm. Salvador, there's a kind of conditional celebration of Blackness. Um, Salvador is understood as, as, as um, a Black city, almost 80 or 90% of the city is understood as Black. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't change that, you know, the majority of the mayors of the city have been white, mm-hmm. um, the, the majority of the folks who control the power in the city are white. Um, and so, and, and even in the context of black cultural practices so like Carnaval and and um, Ache music, mm-hmm. um, the biggest names in that in those music fields who, who get the most money, people like Ivette Sangalo, um, uh, Claudia Leci, uh, uh Daniela Mercury, these are all white women. And so there's still, even though that there is this kind of conditional acceptance of blackness um, to be kind of to 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 kind of um, be celebrated and get the kind of uh, to reap the financial rewards of celebrating black culture. There's still uh, there's still the the desire for this black culture to happen through a white body. Mm-hmm. Um, and but still, that was a very different context than something like Santiago, which because of the 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 proximity to Haiti um, and the 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 complicated context of the Haitian Revolution mm-hmm. um, that there was such a desire for the Dominican Republic to be seen as not Haiti, no. which means to be seen as not black, mm-hmm. and that that there is a very different context than in a place like Salvador um, that can at least do a kind of conditional celebration of blackness. Um, but what I saw. In Salvador, is you know when we were, when I was connecting with LGBTQ groups in Salvador because it's a black city. Um, inevitably, those groups were 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 black queer groups or black mm-hmm. trans groups, um, and so the folks who were in leadership were talking in the same way that those groups that I was connecting with in Oakland mm-hmm. were, were having conversations. And it wasn't until like I had that experience post college. Um, connecting with these groups in Oakland that I remembered that and I saw the kind of connection mm. and so that's where I was like, okay, so there's already a transnational conversation happening here, regardless of whether activists are talking to one another that they're choosing similar kinds of, of language, mm. similar kinds of tactics for movements because that they're because they're responding to, to interconnected systems of global white supremacy, of global heteropatriarchy of global capitalism.
0: Wow, that's that's such a, like, you put that together, and then also, it's this very, it's always interesting that regardless of how sometimes these conversations move, Haiti is always there, like, it's, yes. you have yes. to, like, you have to understand how, in order why Another group of population reacts the way they do. It's informed by history, <laughs> and yes. it's is like in the center of that Black Studies. Like if there's not that understanding, you're about to miss out on a lot.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, that is that's like literally that's um, that's like the center of when I think about teaching Black Studies. There's no way to teach it without beginning with a place like Haiti because like that like what Haiti did in in the late 1700s early 1800s was unheard of (laughs) like Mm -hmm. creating a free black nation in the midst of transatlantic slantry I mean just Exactly. just... (laughs) (laughs) exactly and I remember so like that actually uh reminds me of so, I remember one of the things that showed me that, like, whenever I, I'm i doing a kind of, of teaching of Black history, that it always has, always already has to be transnational. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was taking my African American um, history course, it was in, in, in undergrad, and it was structured like most are, 1619 mm-hmm. 1865, and 1865 to present. Um, and I was taking the first portion of it, and I remember we were talking about. Um, uh, the AME Church, the, mm-hmm. the construction of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. Um, and, and we were reading this great biography of Richard Allen, the founder of the church. Um, and there's this one moment where, where they were talking about how some of the church was wanting to migrate to Haiti because Haiti was inviting mm-hmm. um, Black people from around the diaspora to come um, cultivate certain parts of the nation. And so part of the church was like, no, we are um, like, this is where our ancestors are. So we're going to lay, um, lay our, our roots down here. Mm-hmm. But part of the church migrated. Um, and so I was really interested in this story and this kind of conflict, this kind of early, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, Pan Africanist conflict. Um, and I, it wasn't until I studied abroad in Santiago And we went to Samana, the Samana Peninsula, Mm -hmm. which is in the northeastern part of the island. Um, And we talked to Leticia Whitmore, Mm -hmm. who is a descendant of the AME church group who migrated down to Haiti, which was Haiti at the time, but is now the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because, uh, one, slavery was outlawed in the Dominican Republic because the... the, um, the Haitian government took over the whole island to stop Europe- European forces coming back in, trying to re-enslave Haiti. Mm-hmm. And so that was the end of slavery um, in in the Dominican Republic. And what the Dominican Republic celebrates as Dominican independence is actually the separation from Haiti, mm-hmm. not the kind of the, the independence from Spain mm-hmm. or the kind of uh, like 20 years after uh, they separate from Haiti, um, Spain tries to recolonize uh, the Dominican Republic. They don't celebrate the kind of um, the freedom from that. It's the kind of separation from Haiti. So again, <laughs> the kind of centrality of Dominican identity being anti-Haitian. Uh, but like, there's such a big portion of the story that was left out of my African American history, of course, because there was not a conversation of all of these dynamics that were happening in Haiti mm-hmm. and what eventually became the Dominican Republic. So for me, that was like, so you can actually then completely tell the story of Richard Allen and the AME church in Philadelphia without talking about Haiti, without talking to the Dominican Republic. So there's this whole kind of transnational, global black context that actually has to be talked about if we're going to get a full story mm-hmm. of something that is very localized the
0: Philadelphia black communities yeah oh that's so beautiful. It's like pieces of a puzzle coming together you know and yes. it's like yes. you think I think every time this happens I'm like what else am I missing like what what, yes. else is a piece, yes. like, and what else am I not seeing and then you know I run through the bibliography at the end of a book <laughs> but you <Yes>. know <laughs> it's, it's, yes. Um, yes. It's, it's, it's just pretty yeah there's this need to connect the pieces of the puzzle and understand how something became the way it was. Like, it's not just, just to go a little deeper. And I guess this makes me think you included so many different like global parts, languages. While you were going through this process of putting this all together, did you receive pushback? Because I'm just, I mean, like whether it was pushback <laughs> in terms of, I don't know. Cause you also mentioned something a little bit earlier when you said, um, Black studies has have been trying to be institutionalized, and there's something that sometimes when you bring these topics to the like to add to the ivory tower, um, yes. you have to stick strong <laughs> ten toes down <laughs> and like yes, hold on, yes. kind of like what you the objective of what you came here for, and having a community that'll help you see this through. Um, yes. So how how was that? Because the other part that I really like is you you interacted with communities, you know, it's not like you were just writing in a corner by yourself. (laughs) You were like, no, these are people that are living what I'm writing about and, you know, putting it out there. So.
1: Yes. No, that's a two, two really great points. Yes. Um, So of course I received pushback. Um, And, and I don't want to say that I think, most of the times the pushback that I received was well-intentioned. Um, and you know, it's, y- you are in a PhD program for five to six years. Most folks would prefer no more than seven years. Um, and, <laughs> and
0: so, and right. my and friends I, are like and, and married I, and having kids and I'm like still with this dissertation. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. And I, and I think that they're, are so you said like, you know, a lot of my research was interacting with communities. So there's a lot of anxiety, um, around social science research, research that requires you to go out and be in communities. I think there's less anxiety around, um, methods that are, for instance, like discourse analysis, um, where, where you can do kind of analysis of literature, of media, um, where there's not necessarily, you don't have to be out in the community doing research, um, that you can kind of um, analyze what you have available to you in archival materials and media materials, etc. Um, but I think there's a lot of anxiety about the time that it takes to do social science research, which makes sense, because I think historically, social science research had a lot more time to do the research, but because of the neo- neoliberal university and the kind of, um, pinching of pennies, um, the lack of funding that's available to graduate students. And it's funny because this is directly at the time that, you know, um, more people of color are entering the Academy that black women are actually the, the most, uh, uh, um, the most educated, uh, uh, Sector of society, and and it's at that point that we're going to start pinching pennies. So I don't think that's coincidence, <laughs> but um, but so so there's a lot of anxiety around how long it takes to do uh, social science research. So all of the pushback that I got was really around. Okay, so you're trying to do um, field work in two countries um, to do a, this kind of transnational compare uh Relational project, um, and you know how are you going to find the time to do it? Um, and I will say that I think that folks kind of backed down on me um, when I so I got the the I got the the social science research councils international dissertation. Um, international dissertation research fellowship i think it's called um, which sadly does not exist anymore i think that was a terrible decision i don't know why that they made that decision but i think that that still should exist because that allowed so many people from the social sciences but also from the humanistic social sciences um, to do international research in a really important way Uh, but so i got that and then i also got the fulbright and so once I got um, these kinds of external funds to, do, to have time to do the research, I think that folks were a little less nervous um, because um, I didn't have to, to you know, th- there was already time embedded because that gave me about three years to do field work. Um, and so um, I think that that's when folks started to calm down with their worries about the Transnational Project. Um, but there is a lot of, of pushback because um, I think that folks are, are, are conditioned to understand if you're going to, to look at a project with detail, then you have to look closely at one location. Um, and, and I think that, I don't think that my work, um, I don't think that my work is not detailed and I don't think that my work is not um, doesn't zoom in deeply, um, but what I'm trying to do geographically is not—I don't think—is the norm. Now there are some great scholars who are showing me how to do this, who are kind of taking those risks. So, like Jafar Allen's most recent work. Um, there's a disco ball between us, um, does a really great kind of transnational analysis of thinking through the black gay long eighties. Um, and I think that, 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 that kind of work is really, um, um, I don't, I mean, I think he might've gotten pushback back if that was going to be his first project, but as he is, uh, <laughs> uh full professor, that is second, that's his second book. Um, I think that they, that, that he is, a like, th- there's a way in which senior scholars are allowed to take certain kinds of risks, but there's also like Jennifer Graham's, uh, mo- most, uh, recent book looking at, um, constructions of rates in, in, throughout the 20th century in the United States and Brazil also does this kind of comparative, um, uh, This international comparativist perspective. So, there are models in doing this. Um, I think people just know that it's not the easiest thing to do. Um, So, I, I definitely got pushback. And I also think part of that pushback comes from, so, my, my, the study, the program that I studied in Africana Studies at Brown. I think historically was very understood as a diasporic program. That's why I chose it. Um, I chose it because it had some of the best names in Afro Latin American studies. Mm. Um, and so historically it's been a department really dedicated to kind of um, in Black international approach. um, That's why it chose the name Africana Studies when it became a graduate department. Uh, But I think that one of the things that's important to understand is that, you know, a department can be known for a thing and a department can... can as a group collectively commit to something, but that doesn't mean that everybody in the department is going to be about that. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that everybody in the department is, is, is going to be, you know, internationalist. Yeah. Some folks might have investments in a kind of U.S. nationalist, black U.S. nationalist project. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's fine. Um, but I do think that that then becomes complicated when, the whole department then is discussing, because all departments discuss all graduate students. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where some of the pushback comes from. But the pushback was never from the folks on my committee. So my committee, even though they might've been worried about what I was doing, um, I think that one of the reasons that they accepted being on my committee is that they were passionate about what I was doing. So while they understood that it was a a complicated thing to do, um, that there was excitement about it. Um, and, and largely that comes from like my committee were folks who were invested in not just kind of transnational research, but also transnational solidarity. Um, so they were folks who were, who were, um, continually thinking about how do I produce research that actually benefits the communities that I'm working with transnationally. Um, so I think that that's, that's the thing that always protected me, that I had a committee who understood the kind of project that I was doing. I was never having to fight my committee.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's always good to hear. <laughs> that's always <laughs> good to hear. You know? And I really like that you mentioned that, you know, if receiving pushback doesn't mean... You know, it doesn't always mean something negative, but it could start off with very right. good intentions in terms of like, yes, sometimes just saying like, "Listen, we don't know how we will fully support you because this is huge," <laughs> or you know, yes. um, them just saying maybe not now, but maybe think about it later, and then seeing how like senior faculty can have that freedom to do it because they'll have more space and funding, and etc. But yes, the one thing I do appreciate of what you said is like looking at who's already doing what you're doing and seeing what models you can, you know, you can kind of resemble, maybe not to that full scale, because you yeah. will put a lot of pressure on yourself, <laughs> but um, <laughs> what's already been done and maybe trying to continuing that later, because I know the yes. thing that I've been, to, it's like, this is not like the end all be all like, <laughs> you will have a life after where but hopefully <laughs> in regards to you know, continuing <laughs> this project further but it's um yeah it just takes that effort to kind of like pin it down and say okay i'm not going to solve all the world's problems with this dissertation
1: <laughs> exactly exactly and the dissertation is not the end product like you will like the dissertation is only the beginning that's I think helpful for folks and also I just want to quickly correct myself I said Jennifer Graham I mean Jessica Graham oh, okay. uh, awesome Brazilianist scholar out of UCSD uh, historian
0: and so while you've been going through this what were some of like the transformational moments of like do you recall like a light bulb moment that helped you recall why you did this in the first place? Something that gave you a push, whether it was like new information and experience. Um, and, you know, sometimes these experiences are not always pleasant. You tend to think of them like, oh, it was that one good feeling, which could be true. But maybe it was like, you know, like you were talking about like that experience at the club, which was traumatizing but it helps mm. you remember why you're doing this work in the first place.
1: Right, right. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I had a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's just <laughs> I you know, now that I am sitting down to 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 begin the writing of my proposal and the book, um, I'm having to remember (laughs) pre-pandemic, and I'm just realizing that, you know, when you, when something like the pandemic happens, it changes you so much, so it's sometimes difficult to remember before then, Um, but let me think. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. and I do, so yes, I do remember a specific moment that actually then, led me to the title um, so of my dissertation in that book um, so I remember when I was interviewing um, this activist and uh, hip-hop artist in in Sao Paulo Felipe Coto. Um, I was interviewing him and his partner and you know one of my questions was you know what does it feel like to 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 be a black queer person and do activism? What does it feel like to be organizing for black queer queer and trans folks? Um, and I remember his response. He was telling me about his experience um, being a hip hop dancer and finding himself in his blackness doing hip hop dance, but not feeling like he could be openly queer in that space. Um, and so. But then when he, w- he started doing these kinds of hip-hop parties, these queer hip-hop parties, it was when he, he was, he, he, him making that space for, the, the, for him to be both Black, for him to be both queer, and to find that kind of intersection, the kind of making of that space, allowed him to, to not experience these kinds of splits. Mm-hmm. And the language that he put around it is that, you know, In when he was in these hip-hop dance spaces, he felt like he was fragmenting himself. Mm. Um, and so the process of the kind of creation of this, this hip-hop dance space, this queer hip-hop dance space, was almost as if it was a kind of resisting the fragmentation. And that was this light bulb moment, because that was something that everyone described the split. Mm. Everyone in all my interviews up until then, even myself, I've talked about a split. Um, and so that was this light bulb moment where this, this beautiful language was put, this fragmentation um, and the kind of process this the, this kind of resisting fragmentation was this metaphor that worked for all of the kinds of activism that I was seeing so that this, this kind of trend towards a kind of intersectional activism was a kind of process of resisting fragmentation mm. because when queer movements are not um thinking through racial justice project projects the black queer folks that they're inviting into that space they're saying you know we welcome you into this space into our fight as long as you fragment yourself as long as you leave that over there um, as long as you leave that black thing over there um but when there's a kind of acknowledgement that you know all of these kinds of the the oppressions that lie across all these axes of power are all the problem, and that then allows folks to be a kind of complete version of themselves to fight for a freedom that acknowledges the complete version of themselves, and so this resisting fragmentation gave really, really beautiful language to all of the kinds of things that I was hearing in interviews up until then. So that was this oh, light bulb. So that, nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, and, and it
0: makes it, sense. You know, it just like I exactly. don't, I don't know the whole frame, but it's a, it's something that. It's a framework that can be used, this thing to resist fragmentation. Oh, that's so beautiful.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No, I am. It's (laughs) I am so grateful for um, ethnographic research, Mm. particularly because as someone who really who really loves organizing with others. Um, ethnographic research gives you that chance to connect with others, to hear these kinds of beautiful things. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause like for me, when I'm, so me hearing that from him, I wasn't coming up with resisting fragmentation. That was Felipe's. Mm-hmm. That was Felipe's theorization. And so I'm, I'm having these beautiful moments where I'm, 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 hearing really, really insightful theories yeah. from folks who, who, you know, in the academy we read theory, so we learn that scholars who produce theory. Um, but in my experience, for the kinds of um, foundations for my work, it's the activists that I'm talking about, it's the communities mm-hmm. that I'm talking about that's producing the theory. Um, and so I'm so grateful for a kind of ethnographic research for me to be able to learn from folks.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's so, that's, yeah, that's why we're here. That kind of reminds me why I'm here in the first place is to really just look at the theory that's already existing in the community and say, "Yes, like, okay, this is valuable knowledge just as much as the, the old dusty books on the shelf. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they belong. Yes. Now, and I'm thinking, I'm like, they may not belong in a book shape, but maybe these people want to be listened to. The form is different. Yep. Um, but the yep. value is is it's just right there on par. Yes, so that's oh, that's so beautiful. Thank, thank you for for beautifully articulating and taking the time to do that work because that's that's really something that's. nice. <laughs>
1: <Yes. laughs> um,
0: yeah, I same vein, was there a certain a book or a piece of art or something that helped to lift your spirits? Um, you know, during during the time of completing the dissertation, going through graduate mm. school, and wondering if you'll ever finish if you've had those moments.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <was there>? yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean so yeah, I think that one of the the one of the first pieces that I read and made me feel like whenever folks question the kind of transnational approach, uh, made me feel like, okay, so I don't just have to feel like this is the right thing to do, but actually I can feel grounded in this piece mm. because they're telling me that it's it's something that's, that's valid, it's a valid kind of um, approach. So Omasheki Natasha Tinsley's Black Atlantic Queer Atlantic, mm. um, that piece is just so beautifully written but it's also so insightful to, to think about the kind of um, foundational connection that Black folks across Atlantic communities, um, the, the connection that we share. Um, and, you know, that, that <laughs> I'm, I, I'm always very adamantly um, against when folks talk about um black diaspora as an imagined community mm-hmm. um, because i think for me that that ignores the kind of work the work of solidarity that black folks have put in so it's not just that we're dispersed mm-hmm. across these spaces across the atlantic and pacific um and the indian ocean all of these is not just that we're dispersed but it's also that there's work that's been done to to reconnect mm-hmm. and like so so when imagined for me um, just puts it into the realm of the affective. Um, when it's both the it's both affective and it's also like co- uh, tangible work mm-hmm. that's happened, tangible connections that folks have made. Um, and so I think that for for me, this this piece, the Black Atlantic, Queer Atlantic, says this. It explains the kind of connections that are both felt and experienced mm-hmm. uh, between people. Um, and and you know because. So, so, I mean, I think that that for me um, showed me that like, you know, that that's that shows the importance of doing kind of transnational and relational Mm -hmm. um, studies, um, because if not, we'll only understand these things as felt. Mm -hmm. We'll only understand these things as imagined, but to actually look at what does it mean? What does it look like to Mm -hmm. understand these two, these two folks in two places as one? Um, connected community um so yeah black atlantic queer atlantic was definitely something that that got me through
0: uh, so uh, i'll make sure to post the link in the bio and you know <laughs> just to wrap up is there anything any sort of suggestion or advice you would have for um you know just black and brown marginalized bodies that are in academia finishing up a degree um going through you know just like going through the motions whatever, however it is what, what would you what would you say to your younger self um yes who was sitting at the computer or wherever you are garden whatever whatever you're writing question yeah
1: no that's a that's a great question I have a couple of things I think <laughs> one <laughs> One is, is choose your committee well. So I had um, the same three folks who were on my exam committee were also on my dissertation committee. And I added two other folks mm-hmm. um, to the dissertation committee. But I maintained those three folks. Um, and, that's, and you know these folks knew that they were going to be on my committee from the time that I got to, to graduate school. Um, and I think it's really important to choose your committee well one, um, so folks who really support your work. And then two, choose your committee well, understanding that not every person on your committee or not every mentor figure that you get in graduate school can serve as everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that I was really grateful for my committee because in a lot of ways, they serve different things to me. Um, And and you know they also had a relatively good relationship with one another. So knowing that another one served a different kind of thing to me, mm-hmm. what like that didn't bother any of them. They were just like you know it's a lot of work to to supervise someone. So you know if someone else going to take something else on, that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for a lot of folks entering graduate school, they have this understanding that okay, you know I have to have this one one mentor, or one advisor who's going to do everything, mm-hmm. um, and and and. You know, be there for me in every way that I need, and that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of pressure, um, and you know, and I especially see this because the folks who who we see in graduate school, who who that kind of pressure is most put on, are black women academics mm-hmm. um, or women academics in general, mm-hmm. and the kinds of uh, of pressure, the kinds of of <laughs> Stress that that brings to those academics, I think is really unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's really important to understand for for you know your graduate students the mental health that you might not get everything from one person, mm-hmm. and that it's fine to spread across your mentorship needs across different people. So figure out what someone's good at, what someone's good at at, at providing for you, and search out that thing in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that will. Bring the most happiness. Um, so that's one thing. Two, we said this before, but your dissertation is not complete when you when you when you turn it in. You get your feedback from your committee. Don't don't. I mean, you know, everybody has <laughs> different kind of expectations about yeah. how good something needs to be, and when you turn it in. Um, but <laughs> if you need your dissertation to be perfect, um, to turn it in you're going to be in graduate school for a long time. (laughs) And and the way that the job market is, that might be a detriment Mm -hmm. um, to your success. Um, And so really think about how polished your dissertation needs to be. Understanding that, as polished as it is, you will still have to continue to edit that if that's going to be your book project. Mm -hmm. So to understand, you know, if you're getting this to the perfect place and then you still have to do work on it to get it to a book, Mm -hmm. will you have the energy to do that? Will you have the wherewithal to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And so really think about how much perfection you have to put into this dissertation and understand that (laughs) it's not the end product. Mm -hmm. It's really a means to an end. Um, but also <laughs> I guess number three, <laughs> I guess number three is really choose a dissertation project that you're, you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of, some folks, you know, choose a dissertation option to find, you know, that's great for the field. That is the new fad, yeah. whatever, <laughs> um, and then when they get to the end of their dissertation, they're like completely over that project so that they have to completely start a new project to get to that book Mm -hmm. or whatever the requirement is for tenure where they're at. Mm -hmm. Um, So you really wanna choose something that you're passionate about to sustain you. Um, Think that, I'm trying to think if there's anything (laughs) personal. Oh, yeah. Final thing I'll say that's personal. you know, graduate school will be ups and downs mm-hmm. um, in your personal life, in your professional life. Um, and <laughs> it's really, really important not to look to graduate school um, for validation.
0: Oh. Um,
1: oh. Because, <laughs> because, because you, you will, you, you ju- you're just never going to get it. Like mm-hmm. the only thing that graduate school, graduate students, folks in graduate school know how to do is to critique, <laughs> and they they have a lot of difficulty um, pointing out what are the the the, the things that are valuable, mm. and so don't look for gra- to graduate school to figure out what's valuable, especially like you know I remember when I would take classes outside of Africana Studies at Brown, and the ways in which I just felt like folks were coming for me, <laughs> like attacking, <laughs> and it was just really it was really foreign for me, um, foreign to me. Um, but then I understood that in those disciplines, that's how they normally interact. That that's what they think is like, you know, great exchange, academic exchange. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is too much for me. <laughs> and, and so it, it's really... Like, you know, not all the critiques that you get in graduate school are valid Mm -hmm. because most folks think that to be smart, to be intelligent means for them to critique everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really finding validation um, and, you know, sense of self that's not connected to whether you're getting a grant, Mm -hmm. whether someone gave you an A, whether someone gave you good feedback, like you you gotta find your validation elsewhere.
0: Oh, that's that's really that's really important. Number, all of them are valuable, and I know number two, the pressure that are put on um, Black women professors. It's not something we just have to be mindful of our ask, um, and just and I know that's what this project is about. But being mindful of you know our ask and how much we are willing because we can't just take (laughs) and then just walk away or because it's taking from a from a human being at the end of the day. And that that last part, there's nothing like reading a book for the sake of just reading a book or, Mm -hmm. you know, just just admiring the author and just the brilliance and knowing that if it touched you, those are the moments that remind me why I'm here. I'm like Oh just yes. reading that book Just for the sake of the pleasure of reading And the Absolutely. emotions It can create And the, the readership and community That it can create through that shared feeling Of a novel Yes, I'm like that is that is enough Of like a I feel seen And I'm valued And I can value this author And you know and, yes. and, um, Yeah so that <laughs> I definitely can feel Because ooh, waiting for our feedback Or just the critiques of- And <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> <you> just, <laughs> it's like you just look at so much dream. anxiety. It's just like, why am I even here? Like, why this is? <laughs> this is I'm putting
1: myself yes. through this. yep yep and it and it becomes worse when like your only interaction with like so in your final years your only interaction with the university is really when you're getting feedback on your dissertation because you're not in classes anymore Mm -hmm. and so by that time you better have a really really strong sense of self and not need the validation because like it'll just destroy you Mm -hmm. I remember like I had to have a kind of practice with myself where it's like when I get um, chapter feedback for um in, in my during, during my dissertation, I read it, I take a couple of days to deal with the emotional mm. um, impact of that. And then I revisit it to actually then get to work on what's useful. Mm. Um, and so like, like like if I had gotten that kind of feedback my first year of graduate school that I did not have a very strong sense of self, um, that, that would have destroyed me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation you dropped so many gems um but i'll put your link in bio but we'll find you um you know in the, in the link below but thank you so much um dr Poe. thank you this was a lot of fun
1: <laughs> thank you so much for for facilitating this space fatima it's so so incredibly important thank you for this work of course. thank
0: you <laughs>